Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I was fortunate enough to speak with one of the great writers of our time, Tony Award winner and Theater Hall of Famer David Henry Wong. Last month, the cast album for Wong's latest New York show, Soft Power, was released, and we discussed the show and the album in depth, as well as talking about the unfortunate resonance that the show now has while the world is dealing with a global pandemic. In our conversation, Wong also discusses his collaborators on the show, director Lee Silverman, choreographer Sam Pinkleton, composer Janine Tesori, and the show's stars Francis Zhu, Elise Allen Lewis, and Conrad Ricamora. We also get into the cut meth den scene that had been a part of previous incarnations of the show, the production's efforts to raise money for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the changes that Wong is hoping to accomplish while reworking the book to Disney's Aida. In addition to our conversation throughout the episode, you will also hear clips from the Soft Power cast album, courtesy of Ghostlight Records. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with David Henry Wong. Well, first off, congratulations on all of the nominations that Soft Power, both the show and you individually, have been getting. That's got to be a a nice balm to all of the craziness that's going on in the world right now. Yeah, it's nice to get some good news in these times. Does it ever get old with the nominations and all the awards and stuff? Or is it just part of the job now? Or or, or does it always have a little something uh, exciting? No, no, it's, it's always exciting. I mean, it's um, because, you know, there's certainly enough shows that any of us do where we don't get awards <laughs> and, um, you know, recognition, you know, from the peers or from critics or it's just nice to be remembered at the end of a season. And yes, this was uh, an attenuated season, but, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. So um, before we get into talking about the show a little bit, I first wanted to ask just how are you? Like, how are you doing during the quarantine? What are you and your family up to and keeping yourselves busy and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, uh, we're just at home at, uh, you know, at our house in Brooklyn in the, uh, in Fort Greene. So of course, New York has been, you know, really hard hit. And we live about two blocks from Brooklyn Hospital. Um, so, but the good part of that is that, you know, when we go out on our stoops at seven o'clock every night and do the clapping, yeah. uh, not only do, is it, is it sort of great to connect with our neighbors? Um, and it's one of those things where you know, so often New Yorkers can be really rude to each other, but in moments like this, we really come together, which is nice. And we feel like, oh, you know, maybe they can hear us at the hospital and, uh, healthcare workers do p- park on our block. And so, so that's been good. And I, I feel like we're, you know, sheltering under much more privileged conditions than most people. I find it, uh, like I'm really grateful that we have a yard, whereas it's yeah. not like I even am that much of an outdoorsy person or I don't even use the yard that much, but I do now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when it's sunny, it's just nice to be out there. Yeah, absolutely. Are, is it different for somebody who spends their life or at least their professional life sitting in front of a whether it's a piece of paper or a computer and then doing that with everyone else around and kind of being forced to be you know in isolation like this is it different for you trying to do work during this time period than it is normally if you are trying to do any work at all yeah i mean a i am trying i am doing work i find myself pretty much as busy as i was uh except now 
you know, all my meetings are on Zoom and um, and there's no commuting time. But in terms of the actual writing, um, it's not that different from what I've done all my life, which is I've always worked at home, you know, written at home. And I've always had an area that's my office or a room that's my office. And uh, and that's where I can write. Um, so the New York Times did like this chart a few weeks ago where it was ranking professions in relation to how exposed you are to the virus. And, you know, writers were like way down yeah, next yeah, yeah. to loggers. You know, if I, if I was <laughs> chopping down trees, I would be slightly safer. Now, playwrights, of course, are are more affected by this because we our productions have been canceled and uh, we can't do workshops and rehearsals. So, you know, we are affected by as much as any other theater people and that re- a person in that regard. But um, the actual writing is pretty much the same. That's good. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. I think whenever we get out on the other side of this, whether that's from you or any of your colleagues, we will we will need more things to be ready to go because I think we'll all need that either from the professional side or from the, the personal side. So that's good to hear. But we are talking because the cast album for Soft Power just came out available from Ghostlight Records. I'm obliged to, to mention as well. Thank and you. yes, and I saw the show. I was actually at the closing night performance at the public and it has stuck with me ever since but listening to the album i was just flooded not only with the pictures and everything but i was kind of overwhelmed again maybe because of the now eerily you know prescient things that were kind of foretold in the show happening in the world today but i was really kind of overwhelmed with i don't know that i recognized it in the moment but there is such a uh, there's a much more earnest feeling to the show for me at least listening to it you know and i kind of focused on the the fun, the satiric sides of it when I saw it in the theater. Are you finding that if you've listened to it or if you've heard from other people that people are having different reactions to the show from the album than they did when they saw it in the theater? Well, I think to a large extent, the songs are kind of the emotional heart of the show, which is not that different from most shows, Sure. Um, except that in our case, um, the the sort of book and the production also, as you mentioned, had a lot of humor, a lot of satire. Sometimes it was silly. Um, and that, that was part of the experience, too. But if you just sort of pare it down to the songs, which is, of course, what the soundtrack is, then, yeah, you're really looking at kind of the heart and content of what it is that the show is um, is trying to express. And you know, uh, certainly because we've become, if anything, more aware, at least most of us, of the degree to which uh, the decision that we made in 2016 as a country has been even more calamitous in this moment where we could really use coherent and competent leadership <laughs> from the White House, A. And B, you know, this is a show that centers around um, a hate crime, you know, based on when I got stabbed in the neck a few years ago. And we have very sadly seen a resurgence of anti-Asian hate uh, in the last few months based on COVID and this association of Asian Americans as being perpetual foreigners. You know, one's forebears can have been in this country for several generations and people still go, oh, you speak really good English, which most of the time is just annoying. But at moments like this, we get blamed for the virus, which is a very 
you know, silly the same way that it would be equally wrong to, you know, have blamed the African-American community for Ebola. Um, and so a musical which ends with a cast of Asian-American faces singing about our place in this country and our commitment to democracy feels uh, even more present now. I was taught in the land of the free. I was taught where they screamed at me life, life, liberty, liberty. How can I turn my back on democracy? And I forget what I really should know. I forget that it's such a big, big show. Still I The earnestness of the show uh, hit me even more. And like you said, that's probably because it's so focused in the songs themselves. But I wondered as I was listening, because it's still very funny. um, Did you have to focus on maintaining a balance between those two parts of the story? Or was that it just naturally fell in between them? Or did you try to make sure that you weren't going too far in one direction versus the other one when you were trying to, uh, you know, finalize what you were getting on the page? Yeah, I mean, I think tone has always been a big challenge for the show. So the the conceit that we're t- trying to do sort of a, a reverse King and I, and that we're telling a story that our audience knows isn't true. Uh, in our case, the idea that a Chinese executive has, uh, you know, romance with Hillary Clinton. So we objectively, of course, know that's not true. But the the well, the task we set ourselves was to tell the story as truthfully and earnestly as we could, such that it would have the emotional effect of musicals like King and I. And so that's always been, uh, had tricky implications in terms of tone, because um, there were things that we did in the show's first production at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles uh, that were sillier than what we did in New York. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we had, and I still kind of missed it, uh, but in LA and San Francisco, we had a meth den, you know, so it's like an opium <laughs> den, but it was meth. Um, and that's where, uh, Shishing, the Chinese protagonist first meets DHH, um, the, you know, the, 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 yeah, the yeah, autobiographical yeah. figure. And, um, you know, David's, uh, in this meth den kind of smoking, smoking a pipe. Um, so that, you know, that maybe we came to feel, oh, that's, too far <laughs> <laughs> you i mean you still go pretty far um i still think uh what is it welcome to america is it's short but it is one of the funniest things i've heard in a long time when i f- put the cast album on for the first time i just i forgot how funny it was and i just cracked up hysterically so pushing the envelope is still very much represented uh in the show now Welcome to our crazy fucking country, but you know I will protect you. I see you're not white, but you know I will respect you with your gold billfold. So let me be your guy, yo, I can see in all directions, cause I'm round eyed. Bang, bang, dirty, hairy, bang, bang, I'm your ride. With my crucifix and gun, I'll shoot a holy in your side. Bang, bang, dirty, hairy, bang, bang, to the head, in the land of the free and the home of the dead. <laughs> 
You, you mentioned the changes and everything that happened from the California productions to when it finally showed up at the public. Now, obviously, there were some pretty major changes that were far beyond your control that had to kind of be reworked for the show as it was uh, when you finally got to present it in New York. Now, normally when shows make big changes before they come to New York, it's for very different reasons. What was that process like for you as a writer? Was that frustrating to say, oh, the election didn't happen like we thought? And then obviously you wrote in the attack that you mentioned. Um, how did you approach it? Was it cathartic? Was it was it frustrating to have to, you spend all that time working on it once and now you have to kind of reevaluate what the show was? How did you approach that as the writer? I mean, the you know, the, the, the sort of major evolutions in the script that you're talking about, which involved, you know, my originally thinking, oh, this is going to be a show about how a Chinese national helps President Hillary Clinton. Um, mm. And then it, my original conceit for it didn't have the stabbing. But those things were added really before the L.A. production. Um, so while this this show has gone through a big evolution uh, and been affected, I would say, more than your usual development process hmm. by actual events, whether national or personal. The bulk, of, you know, the sort of big building block pieces of that happened before Los Angeles. So La okay, since, gotcha. Yeah, since LA, it was more a question of um, continuing to work with this issue of tone, continuing to clarify the lens through which the audience was seeing the musical. And then going, and this is more a question for uh, Lee Silverman, the director, and Sam Pinkleton, the choreographer, but going from, you know, sort of 2,300-seat theater in um, sure. L.A. to the 300-seat um, Newman at the public. Yeah, I, I would imagine that that's a much different lens to tell the story in. But you mentioned the autobiographical DHH in the show. How do you rate Francis Zhu uh, performing in something that isn't you, but kind of is you? How do you, uh, what kind of rating did you give him on his uh, his interpretation of, of what uh, is effectively uh, your avatar on the stage? Right. Well, Francis always, you know, gets an A or an A plus from me because he... <laughs> has probably been, you know, probably worked with him more than any other actor. Uh, going back to, I believe his first Broadway job was in the original production of M. Butterfly. Oh, wow. Um, so in, you know, about 10 years ago, in my play Yellowface, which also had an autobiographical DHH character, Francis played my father. Mm -hmm. um, and then in this show, of course, he plays a DHH character. And, um, you know, I think what's, important in this project is that as opposed to in Yellowface when the David character was more sort of the the fool of the play um and you know was was the guy who was making all the mistakes uh this was a somewhat more earnest interpretation of a character based <laughs> on me um and i think that Francis always has the kind of heart and the vulnerability and passion and commitment to pull that off. Yeah, he's wonderful. And uh, and it's, it was really nice to see him be recognized not only for this show, but for Cambodian Rock Band as well. He had a, a very good year and two wonderful productions that uh, are 
two of my favorite things that I've seen in a long time, let alone just this season. So always happy uh, to see him recognized uh, for Thank whatever you. it and is. It's, it's, yes, it's worth not- noting that, as you said, he's double nominated, but double nominated twice so far. And, yeah. you know, both the drama desks and for the Lortels. Yeah, and very well deserved. And uh, one of the things that I love both about both of those two shows individually is that they were interesting in terms of the conceits of the show themselves and the way that they were structured. But they were both uh, trying to do things that were outside of what we normally would see in and and I guess a musical, and I know you don't necessarily phrase yours as a musical. I think they're kind of a play with music as well. But they, I just really enjoyed the kind of the boundary pushing and, and the reinterpretations of the form, I guess, uh, that both of both you and Cambodian Rock Band did. So Yeah, no, I mean, Lauren Yee, who is the author of Cambodian Rock Band, mm-hmm. is at least a generation younger than I am. But And I've admired her work ever since her first New York production, Ching Chong Chinaman, and we're friends. And yes, I think Lauren is experimenting with form um, in the way that soft power is, you know, in a different way, but soft power is also experimenting with form. And I'm grateful that we're not going up against each other because she somehow <laughs> ended up in the play category and I ended up in the musical category. Yeah. Do you do you uh, have an issue with uh, the soft power being considered a, a musical? I know that it's a... No, no. I actually do think we belong in the musical category. And if anything, as the play developed, from L.A. to to New York, it became more. Uh, the play became shorter, and um, hmm. and it became even more of a musical. And how how do you go about that working with both Lee Silverman that you mentioned and Janine Tesori? I'm I'm sure. How do you make those changes between? Because if people didn't see it, the musical happens inside the play. How is it about like just cutting the length, or is it about moving some of the stuff that happens in the play? into the musical section, how does that work? Well, I think for us, it was a matter of making the play, streamlining the play more. Uh, I think we had the sense that the audience really wanted to get to the musical sooner. And so we just kept making the play shorter and putting the information that we needed to convey, but trying to get to the music uh, and the, you know, fever dream, the David fever yeah. dream sooner. Yeah. As I was listening back to the cast album, I hear more and more of, this is more on Janine Tesori's side, you know, kind of the musical influences of that. I don't necessarily hear just The King and I. I hear a lot of even stuff like uh, Wonderful Town or, um, or or Pajama Game or stuff like that. I, I wondered how, but specifically talking about The King and I, what was your relationship like with that show before you started writing Soft Power? And has it changed since you've gone through the process of writing this show? Um, I mean, I've always loved King and I. I remember, uh, you know, sort of falling in love with it early in maybe like, you know, when I was in high school or college. And then I really mm-hmm. got knocked out by the Chris Renshaw revival in the late 90s. Um, and then this uh, version that Bart Schur just did is, you know, pretty perfectly rendered. And from a construction point of view, it's uh, it, it's hard to find any flaw with uh, The King and I. You know, I did notice this time when I was seeing the Lincoln Center production um, that there were things about it that were kind of questionable, like the premise, you know, the idea that <laughs> this white woman goes to Siam and teaches the king how to bring his country into the, you know, 20th century and the family of nations. Um, and I, And so what fascinated me was that contradiction between 
knowing something is wrong, but being completely seduced by the craft and artistry and Hmm. the soft power, if you will, of the musical form. And I think that was the initial impetus for trying to create this show. But if you're talking about Janine's score, I mean, one of the reasons that we that Lee Silverman and I really hoped and dreamed of getting Janine as our composer was because we realized in order to pull something like this off, we would need someone who was sort of not only a wonderful composer, but kind of a scholar of musical theater. So we were very conscious of some of the references that uh, we were making, both in terms of, you know, like, It Just Takes Time is a teaching song and derives from that tradition of songs like, you know, Do Re Mi and The Rain in Spain. Uh, You hear, as you mentioned, uh, a a lot of references to different shows. Um, There's a lot of music, man, I'd I'd say, um, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of inspiration in our show. And I think it's fun for musical theater buffs to be able to kind of pick up the uh, tributes and the references and the inspirations that are scattered throughout the score. Is there one that tickles you more than any of the others that people should keep an ear out for when they're listening to the cast album? Um, gosh, I mean, I'm pretty okay. I, I, one of the things that I love is the John Clancy orchestra um, dance orchestrations and kind of, there's a moment in I'm with her where Hillary has to do uh, she's performing for the crowd, essentially. It's like a Chinese totalitarian view of how democracy is a big, big show. And so she's performing, and then she has to kind of run through the gauntlet of tap and uh, swing <laughs> and vogue yeah. yeah. and hip-hop, you know? And, and so it's it's fun to hear how all that comes together in a wacky but coherent way uh, and it was also matched on stage by Sam Pinkleton's choreography and Elise Allen Lewis's performance. You want a show? Hit it! Lisa Allen Lewis, and we talked about Francis Jew, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Conrad Ricamora, who was both in Soft Power and then also in 
the Bart Shear revival of The King and I as well. As someone who has kind of gone off to do some TV stuff in the past few years since The King and I, it was such a treat to see him back on stage. And I was very, very pleased that he was able to reprise the role that he played uh, out in California. What, what did he bring? And although he played one character in the show, he played two very different versions of that character. What did it mean to have him be able to create this role on stage, both in California and in New York? Again, to sort of deliver the soft power of the musical form, we realized we needed somebody who was a kind of classic leading man uh, in terms of how he looks, in terms of his ease of authority, and his ability to deliver the music uh, with a rich, gorgeous voice, but also a certain amount of ease um, that, you know, it's not it doesn't feel hard for him. It's not that it wasn't hard for him to do the show, but he sure. uh, has the talent and the chops to be able to make it seem easy. And you know, you look at a song like uh, New Silk Road, and New Silk Road is the, the, the moment, essentially, where the Chinese, uh, the yellow hero, um, persuades the new administration <laughs> in 2016 to call off their war on China. Um, at the moment, I don't know that that war has actually really been called off. But anyway, that's what happens in the show. And so in order to be convincing with a song like that, you just need you need an an actor who can deliver on all fronts and feel convincing so that an audience can believe, oh, they would be seduced by his pitch and his daring and his his handsomeness to go along <laughs> with this. Yeah, and uh, Conrad definitely uh, delivers all of that in spades. So uh, uh, very, very well cast for that department as well. So um, one thing before I have a, one or two other questions about some other things, but I know that in conjunction with the release of the cast album, um, you all are trying to raise funds for the uh, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about what they do, what this is for, um, you know, what the whole, uh, what the impetus was for tying that into the release of the cast album. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so we wanted to find an appropriate organization to raise money for when we did the album release party um, last week. And because of the rise in hate crimes, all deaf, uh, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund felt like the right organization because they have been fighting hate and fighting for Asian American rights and our place as Americans for 45 years. And it is a moment where a lot of us who are Asian are, are worried about going out. Of course, we can't really go out most of the time anyway, but when we do, you know, it's sort of an additional reason to stay in, if anything. But, you know, even uh, France do, I think, was yelled at uh, the day a week ago, the day of the uh, virtual listening party, and someone yelled wow. at him and called him a Chinese virus. And uh, I was in my doctor's office really a while ago, like six or seven weeks ago, for just a regular appointment, and some other patient yelled at me, "Oh, have you been to China in the last fourteen days?" So it's something that's very present for uh, people who happen to look like me. And that's why we thought it was important to raise money for all deaf. I know after the attack in 2015, you said that you, for whatever reason, maybe you suppressed it or whatever, you didn't feel 
like you needed to be more concerned when you're going out in public. Has that changed at all with this new wave of Asian American violence? I mean, is or is that still kind of the same way you're moving forward with everything? I mean, I think this this new wave is a little triggering for me. I think when I was attacked um, initially, I felt like, well, really, what are the odds? I got stabbed in the neck. Um, am I going to get stabbed in the neck twice? And I, I realized that's not actually how uh, probability works. But anyway, that was <laughs> what I told myself. Um, and now I am, you know, I'm a little nervous. Um, of course, it is nerve making to go out in general. Uh, but you know, if I go out once a week or something to get groceries, um, I do look around me more. And, um, you know, there are like a hundred um, attacks against Asians being reported every day. And wow. sure, in New York City, the odds are that it's not going to be me, but uh, it's, it's just smart to be careful. Yeah, it's still still terrifying whether you've suffered an attack in the past or not. But um, so, well, hopefully the uh, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund can put whatever money is raised to good use and uh, these can start to go away very quickly. But at the very beginning, we mentioned the fact that you are still very much working on a lot of things and who knows what the world has to offer once we get back, uh, you know, out of this craziness that we're in now. But one of the things that we do know that you're working on is taking a new look at the book for Aida, which you were involved with writing in the very beginning. And it's a show that I absolutely love. I, I wonder, I don't know how much you can talk about this at all, but I, I wonder what you're hoping to accomplish or what are some of your goals with, uh, you know, reevaluating this, uh, this book some two decades later. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting to have this opportunity and we're working with, um, Shelley Williams as the director who was in the, um, original Broadway cast. Mm -hmm. He played Nehebka. Um, Camille Brown is choreo choreographing it. And I, one of the things that we are addressing is, of course, in the original version, uh, we had the fantastic Adam Pascal and Serena Scott as Amneris and uh, as Rodimus. Um And I think we're looking to be more authentic and historical in terms of the casting um, and the idea that Egypt was part of Africa and this whole kind of historic disconnect that Egyptologists erroneously made in order to discount the notion that African bodies could have created uh, the great advances in civilization that we associate with Egypt. That is something that we want to, we want to address and, and correct, as well as the fact that as part of that, Nubia has always been denigrated as the sort of more primitive society with Egypt as the superpower. And increasingly, new research uh, is finding that that was not the case after all, that it was more like France and England and, uh, you know, the War of the Roses, and they were rivals, but it wasn't like one of them was the superpower and the other was somehow primitive. Um, so that's those are part of a part of the set of issues that we want to address in this new production. That's wonderful and uh, very exciting. Um, do you obviously we don't really know what is going to happen when we get to the other side of this, but do you have any updates on the timetable for things, or is it you're still operating with what you were before and just kind of waiting and seeing? 
Yeah, I think we're still operating on the assumption that uh, the tour will start in uh, early 2021. Um, and scientists, well, hopefully not scientists, will tell us whether <laughs> that uh, is feasible. Now, I, I know this is a question that I probably will not get an answer to, but I know for those of us that love the show and have kind of been following this, a lot of us are hoping that this tour might end up somewhere in New York when it's done. Is that something that's at least on the table, potentially? Uh, gosh, uh, you're right. I can't really answer that question, but <laughs> I would I would say um, I, it's, it's going to be a, a whole new world when all this opens back up, Fair. and uh, it, a lot of things are possible. Okay, I'll take that, and I'm going to use that as some optimism uh, that's going to carry me through the next few days of quarantining, uh, whether whether I should or not. So I appreciate that very much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to talk to me about this. I, as I said, I, I love soft power. I'm very excited that everyone, who, whether they saw the show or not, are going to get the opportunity to listen to this fantastic cast album. So uh, continued success in quarantining and uh, getting all that work done. And we very much look forward to seeing what you've come up with on the other side of this. Great. And you too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your your support for the, the project. And um, you stay safe. I will do my best. You too. There was once another nation who thought they were number one, surrounded by enemies, so they built a great wall. Stopped trading, tried to hold back the future. China ruined itself for a hundred years. But you don't have to. You seek your happiness in shops or at the mall. You fill your emptiness with drugs or alcohol. But selfishness will be your downfall for true happiness is happiness for all. Some call you barbarians, warmongers, obese. But I believe you tire of your soldiers and police. Inside you want the killings and the wars to cease and live. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have all of David's social media information, details on how you can listen to the Soft Power cast album from Ghostlight Records, and information for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. Tommy Moore is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to the legendary David Henry Wong, Dan Fortune, and the man without whom none of Broadway radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, lay down your fears, lay down your pride, lay down your need to be always number one. Also, always get a second scoop. When you get a chance, ask people to tell you more. Save the earth before it dies As together we rise Other countries, they're already joining this Silk Road? Ever since the ballot box chose your new president, they're all coming our way. So is it already too late for us? How can we prove we deserve to be part of the future? Lay down your fears Lay down your pride Lay down your need To be always number one If you want to be the first Be the first one to Lay down your gun